lot to be said for that. The last um, last couple of days I've spent, um, well actually Friday night and uh, all day Saturday and Saturday night, I spent um, at a place called Oak Bridge, which is down east of Ramona, between Ramona and Julian at a men's retreat that I had the uh, privilege to speak at. And it's kind of fun to be able to do that because you get to meet different people and you get to see different types of groups of people that you have to kind of deal with. And uh, the particular group that I was talking to had a uh, more of a traditional uh, ritualistic type background the kind of background where they're used to congregational response. Now, you know what kind of background I'm talking about? You know, you say something, you say something, that's the kind of way that works. Well, anyway, so the first night that I was there, they had this cheesy portable microphone, and um, it wasn't working real well, and they had all, all across the front where I was speaking, they had, oh, they had, they had drums set up, and they had uh, amplifiers, and they had guitars, and they had all kind of stuff, and I was walking back and forth, and the sound system wasn't working real well. And out of frustration, in the, in the middle of my first session, I just said, this microphone's not working. There's something wrong with it. And they said, and also with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we started out on a real good note, and um, it, was, it, was a, it was a good group. No, actually, they were a great group, and I had to lie to set that joke up. But, <laughs> but, uh, but we, had, we had a good time. It was a, it was a fun time to be there, and I'm glad to be back. And I'm glad that I left last night instead of trying to drive home this morning. Last session, we began to speak on and examine a concept that's found in 1 John chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, turn to it. 1 John 1, starting with verse 5. We see in 1 John 1, starting with verse 5, an idea that's introduced to us. And John is very careful to examine what this particular concept is. We'll see it in 1 John 1, starting with verse 5. Let's read it. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. We're going to examine and pick up where we left off on this idea of what it means to walk in the light. We'll uh, translate it and make it easy for all of us to understand so that we can leave here and grasp this concept and understand what it means to walk in the light. So let's just uh, ask God to bless our time. Our Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to be together. And Lord, we know it wasn't you who decided not to bring coffee here this morning. And, uh, and I just pray that we can keep everybody awake and alert to what you have to say. We just thank you that uh, you're so clear in your word of how you expect us to live our lives, that there is a particular pattern that is associated with being a believer, and help us to identify whether that pattern is true in our life. And we just ask that you could, through your Holy Spirit, convict us of areas that are not pleasing to you, that we can take a look at that, confess it, agree with what you say, and repent and turn and walk from it. And we just thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that seems to be true all throughout Scripture is that the writers will take things that we're familiar with and try to illustrate a spiritual principle. For example, the parables. When Jesus spoke parables, what a parable is, if you break down the word para means to call alongside of, paramedics is alongside of medics, parallels two lines that are alongside one another. So a parable becomes a truth that is alongside of a spiritual truth. So he took something in the physical world that we can identify with 
and he parallels or he tries to bring a spiritual truth into our, our viewpoint so we can understand it. So what we see happening all through Scripture is that God takes the physical world which we are familiar with and he uses it to illustrate a spiritual principle. For example, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Back a couple of books. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer gives us an illustration to help us identify a spiritual principle. And it's a follow-up of Hebrews 11, which talks about the hall of faith. There are men and women who are recognized by God as being those who believe God and acting, acted upon His Word. And he, and he writes and he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does he take from a common experience and try to help us identify with? What is he looking at? A race. He's saying, hey, you're all familiar with running races. So he uses the games or a race as an illustration to bring across the spiritual truth. So he's taking a race. What does he say about running a race? Give me, some, give me some hints that he throws out that says, hey, if you want to run the race successfully, what must you begin to do? Okay, number one, he says, lay aside every encumbrance. Anything that slows you down from running the race, from completing the race, from finishing the race, anything that slows you down, you need to shed that so that you can run the race. And if any of you have ever run, you know there are different things that people do to be able to try to shed those encumbrances. It's amazing if you take a professional athlete who is a track runner, the things that they do, I mean, a quarter of an ounce difference in their shoes means all the difference in the world to them. The fact that they'll shave the hair off of their body at times just to shed another whatever how much weight that would be. depends, I guess, if you start out as a gorilla, then... Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> then you may, you know, that may really cut it down for you. But any little advantage that you can get, they do it. Man, I've seen guys that trim the bottoms of their shoes, and they'll just trim off a little bit of excess of the sole just so that they can have less encumbrance in the race that they're about to run. What is the encumbrance, or what are the things that easily entangle us in this race called life? Sin. He said, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. I happen to believe that the sin that he's talking about is, is a follow-up to Hebrews chapter 11, which would be the sin of unbelief, not believing what God says is true. Because it says, therefore, connecting chapter 11 with chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses around us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin, definite article, specific sin that easily entangles us, the sin of unbelief. That's the sin that says, hey, this is what God says about whatever it is that you're struggling with. Do you believe him or don't you believe him? And what will entangle you, and it'll, it'll tie into what we're talking about of walking in the light, it will entangle you or it will keep you from being able to walk according to the way that God wants you to walk. Not believing God will hinder your walk or in this particular case, it will hinder your ability to run the race. And he also says what? How should you run the race? Okay, you keep your eyes on the goal, but before you do that, what do you have to do? You have to endure. You can keep your eyes on the goal and stop running. You have to run with endurance. You have to keep on running. 
And so what he's saying is, guess what, folks? And this is the grind of the Christian life. The grind is not over until we're home with the Lord. That's the grind. That means that day in and day out, you and I have decisions to make as to whether we will be pleasing to God in our life or pleasing to ourselves, whether we'll be obedient to His Word or whether we'll allow the sin of unbelief to entangle us from being able to run the race according to the way God wants us to run it. It never gets any easier. Let's just get it right from the beginning. There will always be a struggle in pleasing ourselves or pleasing God. You know, and I think sometimes we just need to make everybody aware of that because some of us feel like failures because we're struggling with things in our life. Well, let me just tell you something. I struggle with things every day. I get decisions to make every day, and it doesn't get any easier for me. But once I realize that when I believe God and take Him at face value for what He says in His Word, and I begin to do what He says to do, and I see the results that He says will come about as a result of obedience, and I find out that He's trustworthy, it makes it easier for me to continue to believe what He says in areas that I'm now encountering that I've never encountered before. I believe Him because of what He's done in my past. I believe Him about the future, even though I haven't been there yet yet because he's trustworthy and he's laid a precedent for me that I can trust him. And that's the way it is. So he says you got to run with endurance. Don't give up. Keep on running. Keep on obeying. Keep on believing. And you know what? And the way that we do it is we fix our eyes on the finish line because one day we're going to see him face to face. The thing that keeps me going is realizing one day that I'll stand face to face with the God who created me and loved me and gave himself for me. And one day I'm going to give an account, according to 1 Corinthians, that I'm going to have to give an account for everything that I did while I was here in the flesh. There's a day of judgment that comes. So what keeps me motivated is I've got a review coming up before Jesus Christ. And it's not, whether, it's not for the fact that I put my faith and trust in him because this review takes place at a different judgment seat and that's the review for all believers as to whether we lived a life that was pleasing to him. That keeps me going. And so he uses that as an illustration. We're all familiar with running a race. We all see the advantages of laying aside every encumbrance. We all see the disadvantages of having things to entangle us so that we don't perform according to our abilities. We've all seen people who have quit in the middle of a race, who've taken their eyes off the finish line and have put their eyes on themselves. And one of the things I tell my kids, man, anytime I've got a kid who's down and he's made a mistake, maybe he's struck out or whatever, you know what's amazing to me? You know the first thing the kid does when he does it? What's the first thing a kid does when he strikes out? He looks down. Every time I've seen anyone in any sport who has failed at something they try to do, the first thing that they do is they look down in shame. And they walk away like this. And the first thing I do is tell them, hey, lift your face up and put your eye back on the goal whether it's watching the ball come in from the pitcher, whatever the goal is, you look at your goal. Don't look down at the ground. Don't feel sorry for yourself. We all make mistakes, but you get another chance. Go get them. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He uses another illustration. <clears throat> I guess the encouragement as you think about it is that you know, some of us are looking down at the ground. And that's understandable because it's a natural thing to do, and we'll talk a little bit about it. But I guess the encouragement that I get from the Word of God is that God says, hey, look, you know what? Run the race with endurance. Don't quit. Don't drop out. Don't look at the ground. But put your eyes back on Jesus again. And I'll tell you what, that'll get you going. 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 22 through 27. Paul speaking of trying to reach people for the cause of the gospel, trying to reach people for Jesus Christ. He says, To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. 
says, and I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. He said, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Said, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, You know what's common among people who win and are good at what they do? So there's one thing that's common, and he's seen it in verse 25. Do you know what it is? What is it? What? Moderation? Okay. Training? What? Discipline. Self-control. said, if you want to be a winner, you've got to exercise self-control. Isn't it fascinating, the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. To be able to control the desires you have to please yourself and to be able to do that which pleases God. See, as we're walking in the light, as we're walking in a way that is pleasing to God, we must exercise throughout the choices that we have self-control. We all have choices to please ourselves or please God. And that's part of running the race with endurance. And, and every day you've got choices to make when you get up. Today, Lord, am I going to live to please you or am I going to live to please myself? Those are the choices I have to make. He said, but you know what's, what's amazing to him was that what was consistent among all those who were winners and were successful at whatever they were doing was that they exercised self-control. They had a choice. When I was training for not this last marathon, but the one before, it was like every time that you had a choice of what to eat, I yeah, had a struggle with this particular question. I would look at a brownie and say, boy, that brownie looks good. Then I would think, but that brownie means I've got to run eight miles to burn that little stinking brownie off. <laughs> then I began to think how much fun running eight miles is. <laughs> and then I'd look at the brownie, and then I'd think, and I'd look at the brownie. And I'd say, I don't want the brownie. <laughs> And that's the way that it works. But that was self-control. And, that, and what it meant was that I understood the cost or the price that had to be paid to enjoy that one particular pleasure that would have lasted only a few minutes. And then once you lose self-control, then what ends up happening is that you slam down three or four brownies and a half a gallon of milk. <laughs> so you're rec- you got to recognize that. So anyway, we're talking about walking in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? Somebody help me out. What does it mean? Give me another word that you would use for walking. Huh? Running. Running in the light. <laughs> living. How about just living in the light? Huh? Lifestyle. That's what we talk about. Well, it says if we just plug in living in each of these particular situations. Blessed are those who know the joyful sound. They, they live, O oh Lord, in the light of your presence. They live as though God is watching everything that they do. And the amazing thing is, He is. So that's a good way to live. He also goes on and uh, Paul says, live as children of light. Live in newness of life. Do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he continually tells us that what we want to do is we need to live a way that is proper. We need to live by faith and not by sight. We need to live in the Spirit. We need to live in Him. So he's saying that our lifestyle should reflect that which we say we believe. That's the point that we're making as we go through this. So we're going to take a look at five truths about walking in the light from 1 John, if you go back to 1 John chapter 1, we'll go through it one at a time. 
<clears throat> this lifestyle. Basically, whose idea was it? And we'll go through it one at a time. Number one, we see that this idea of living a different type of life was communicated to us from Jesus Christ. It was his idea. Okay, this isn't our idea. This isn't man's idea. This isn't some religious institution's idea. Jesus said that there was a different way to live for God's people. And what is becoming more alarming to me every day that I'm alive is how there is less and less a difference between people who claim to be Christians versus those around us who have never come to know Jesus Christ. It is becoming an, an immense concern for me because I see no difference in our lifestyles. And so let's get something straight, if nothing else, before you leave here. Jesus said there was a difference between the way his children were to live and the rest of the world operates. And if there isn't a difference, then you better examine yourself, make sure you're not deceiving yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. Is there a difference between your life and people around you who don't know and have never come to know the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ? It was Jesus' idea. That's what he said in 1 John 1, 5. He said, John writes that this is the message we heard from him and we declare it to you. Jesus taught me this. He said he heard it at a point in the past and what he heard continued to that day. It had continuing effects into the present. He was changed by what Jesus taught. Jesus taught there was a difference between living in darkness and living in light. He said there was a difference between living as a non-Christian and living as a Christian. And he goes on and he explains it in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Speaking of Jesus, it said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, speaking of John the Baptist, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so the point that he's making is that Jesus was the light that came into the world. And it says in John three nineteen through 21, it says, and this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They didn't want anybody pointing out to them that they weren't living a life that was pleasing to God. I feel like when I go to, sometimes when I go to places and they know if my reputation regretfully precedes me wherever I go, in particular it's true when I'm working with the Rams and I go in the locker room where I, I, I'm anywhere near uh, that particular facility and people know who I am and know who I represent, I feel like E.F. Hutton. I mean, I can get conversations to stop in an instant. It's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful trick. It's funny how that works. And you probably have the same thing happen if you are living a life that is pleasing to God and people can see a difference between your life and their life. When you walk into a situation and they're in the middle of a story or a dirty joke or something else, it's like everything goes on hold for a moment. Say, hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, okay, good, good to see you guys. And you walk away, and the next thing you hear them finish the punchline, and now we're rolling with laughter. But you feel like E.F. Hutton, you know? And, 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 uh, and then I begin to realize that that's okay. But you know what? There's a part of me that says, gee, I want everybody to like me. Then there's the other part of me that says, but if they like you, and they don't stop their conversation, they must not have much respect for what you say you believe and who you represent. 
And if I just chip in and become one of them, then guess what? Then I am not living a life that's different than they are in those areas. So we've got to ask some questions. And that is, hey, if I walk into a room, if you walk into a room, do people change what they're doing because they recognize who you represent? See, we're ambassadors for Christ. That means when you go in there, you represent him. Do they know that? Well, here's what happens. It says that when the light shines on the darkness, they hate the light because it exposes their evil deeds. Think about this for a moment. If you've come to accept Christ in your life, the Bible says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, John 16, Jesus said this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment so what happens is that god begins to convict non-believers first of all of sin of unbelief not believing that jesus christ is god in human flesh not believing that he died for their sins not believing that he rose again from the dead and not believing that he's the only way that they'll ever be able to get to heaven that's the number one sin the holy spirit convicts the world of but it also says he convicts the world of sin righteousness and judgment So when you walk into a room or into a situation with people who don't know Christ, what they're convicted of is that one day they will be judged for the deeds that they're doing that they do in darkness because they don't want anybody to know what they're doing. That's the point. It says everyone who does evil hates the light. Now it makes me think about something. Guess what? I can't expect people to like me if they're living in darkness or a life that's not pleasing to God because I represent the light that shines on their darkness that exposes their deeds, they hate me just like they hated Jesus. And that's why when the, when the, the disciples were always concerned, well, Lord, you know, we're really being persecuted and people don't like me and I don't understand it, blah, blah, blah. He said, hey, they're going to kill me. They're not going to like you. And they all, 11 out of 12, realized he was right, and they all they got killed too. So don't expect people to like you. Don't be an idiot to have them not like you for any other reason besides the fact that you're living a life pleasing to God. Some of us go out of our way so people don't like us. Well, you know, you don't have to push it. It'll come naturally. <laughs> it says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that he, it may be seen plainly that what is done has been done through God. So what's the point that he's making? Jesus said in, in John eight twelve, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me ask you something. When you sin, what's the most natural thing to do? It's the most natural thing to do. Start in the garden. There's a, there's a hint. Justify it, blame on somebody else. What did they do? Run and hide. Man, I'll tell you what, the most natural thing to do when we sin is to hide. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. God said, hey, where are you? He knew where they were. They said, well, um, we were hiding. It's the first hide-and-go-seek game. That's how it all started, right there, right in the garden. But they were hiding. Why were they hiding? Because of what they did. Joshua 7, Achan, said, I saw it, I coveted it, I took it, and I hid it under my tent. See, isn't it funny how when we sin, the first thing we want to do is hide it? We'll hide it from one another. We don't want to be around Christians who will bring that into focus, what we're doing. 
So we'll hang around non-Christians because they'll say, well, I don't understand what the problem is. See that? You know, you got that, oh, you got that legalistic, this, that. You know, we need some balance in our life. Here's the latest one that I heard. This is a good one. Here's a gal that um, is involved in one of our Bible studies who knows better, is, is living with her boyfriend, sleeping with her boyfriend. They're going to get married, blah, blah, blah. And she told another gal who was in our study who said, you know, that's wrong to do that. And she said, you know what, you just need a little balance in your life. You know, you're just taking this to an extreme. You're going a little too far with this. You're going overboard. Isn't it amazing how that is? Oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're just taking this to an extreme. Well, if, if there's two different lifestyles or there's not. Or it's all one big thing, let's mix and stir. But the problem is Jesus said there's a different way to live for his people. most natural thing to do is to hide. If you're sinning right now, if you've got something in your life, you're trying to hide it from everybody else, but we've got a God who sees it. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, he begins to convict you of that sin. You know exactly what we're talking about as we speak, which is good news. That means that, that you do know the Lord. The problem is that you've fallen in an area of your life, but the good news is the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is pointing out exactly what you need to confess, agree with God, repent, and turn from. The problem with the non-Christian is they don't even know when they sin because they don't have that conviction. They don't know what's right and they don't know what's wrong. So it doesn't bother them. So that's good news, bad news story of being a Christian who's sinning. Can't enjoy it anymore. That's the bad news. Or is it the good news? I guess it's both. There we go. Number two. He, you know what? He also said that it said uh, that we would never or we would always walk in light because it's centered in the moral character of God himself. John says, this is the message you've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. God is perfect. He is morally pure. Therefore, check this out. If you want to live a life in the light, that means as a believer, you live a life that is morally pure. If he is morally pure, which he is, and there is no sin in him, which there isn't, and the two are mutually exclusive of one another, then that means that we are to live a life that's morally pure. And so I guess the question is, are you living a life that's morally pure? That's a simplistic, uh, I guess, the simplicity of the message. You know what's interesting? I had a guy that I talked to over the weekend. Man, some people can just wear you out. Have you ever met people like that? They can just, man, they can just wear you out. Um, and what's bad is when they say, do you have a minute? Because they don't really mean that. They mean, can I have you for the rest of my life? Said, well, yeah, sure. I, well, yeah, what? Uh, sure, whatever. You know, and then you're the speaker, so you've got to act cool and be available to the people. <laughs> so you do that kind of stuff, right? So anyway, so this guy, he says, he goes, you know, I'm really struggling with an area in my life. I said, well, what's that? He goes, well, you know, I've got this friend who, who says that, you know, he takes Jesus with him everywhere. I said, okay, well, what's wrong with that? He says, no, I mean, he actually, if he's in a, in a group with people and they start telling dirty jokes, he'll, he'll turn and he'll pretend like he's talking to Jesus and say, can you believe what they're talking about? This is amazing. I can't understand. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not Harvey the Rabbit, you know, but, but, but he does that. And, he, and I said, well, well you know, I, I understand what he's doing and maybe I wouldn't do it quite like that. But, but I said, well, what's the problem? He goes, well, you know what? I just haven't got to that point yet. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I leave Jesus in the car. I'll leave him in the car. I, and I asked him, I said, well, do you crack the window? I hope. You know, what does this mean? I leave him in the car. And he's like, oh, man, you're wearing me out. I said, well, no, you know, but, I, but I, you know what he's talking about. He, said, he explained it. I said, well, you know, what, tell me what you mean. He goes, well, I haven't got to that point where I take him everywhere that I go. I said, oh, okay. So what he's saying is that, you know, some places I take him, some places I don't take him. 
Some places I'm like the crowd, and some places I'm not like the crowd. I always take them to church with me because I know Jesus likes church. <laughs> so, you know, I always do that, and I take them to Bible studies with me, you know, and I take them to where I know that he'd like to go, and places I don't think he'd like to be there, then I don't take them with me. I say, man, that's an amazing thing. How do you work that out? I said, well, what do you mean? I said, oh, that's an impossibility. I said, it is? I said, sure. So what do you think the Apostle Paul meant in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live, by the, life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What do you think that means? If you have come to know Christ and he lives within you, he doesn't jump out and wait in the car. <laughs> you know, is that true? He doesn't get out. Say, oh, you're going in there. I'm getting out of here. You know, he's not bailing out. It's like, cut me a break. He's there. He's there anyway. You know, you don't have to save a spot next to you. He's already sitting in your seat with you. That's the way it works. But this guy's like, gee, come, you know what? It, it's not an option. It's not an option. If you've come to know Christ, you don't have an option to leave him at home. Okay? He goes with you everywhere, whether you want him to or not. And that's the rub. He's there. And you're dragging him into situations and you're dragging him into conversations that he'd rather not be at, but he's with you because he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you and you're dragging him with you and you've got to understand that. We don't have the option of picking and choosing where he's going with us. How are you going to keep the God of the universe in a car? <laughs> Think about it. His presence fills the universe. I'm going to stick him in a car. Give <laughs> me a break. It's amazing though. People are really lame. Oh, of course, though, none of us struggle with that. Hey, number three, he says it's contrasted with walking in the darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. Okay, here we go. He says this, if we claim, and it's easy to do so, I'm a Christian, no problem. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, I'm a Christian, yet I'm sinning, then guess what? You're lying. That's the way it works. We need to learn how to walk. We need to learn how to live. Now, I guess the point is, turn with me to he, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Because some people, they look at this and go, well, well, and it is to some degree, and we're not very specific on it. So we'll make sure we try to get as specific as possible. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to have a little walking lesson. Okay, you ready to walk? Let's do it. Here's what usually happens. We usually tell people, what not to do. We usually tell people what not to do. That's an easy thing to do. I tell my guys when they go up to bat, don't strike out. <laughs> don't strike out. Hey, there's some coaching tips there, huh? That really carries them on to further their baseball ability. I used to tell them not to strike out. Then I realized that's a pretty stupid thing to tell them because they don't want to strike out anyway. It's not like they're going up there saying, you know what? I think I want to strike out. In fact, I'm going to strike out standing there. You know, you can't tell him that. So what do you do is you say, look, you know, I had one kid, and he's really struggling. And what happened was he likes to swing at everything over his head. He's got that, you know, and when he warms up, he swings, man, he got this nice level swing. But as soon as he gets in the game, everything that's up here, he's going, Nyah! and it's like, wait, wait, this doesn't work. So I have two choices. I say, look, don't swing at anything over your head. But you know what? By the time it's coming over his head and he already starts to swing, he's going, it's over my head, and I swung. Oh, gosh. And, he, and then there goes his head. His head's down again. So I say, look, Mark, listen, listen to me. I got an idea. What I want you to do is, I want you to swing at everything that's from here to here. Swing at everything that's from here to here. 
don't, don't swing at anything over your head. Don't swing at anything outside. Don't swing at an inside pitch. I don't tell them what not to do. I tell them what to do. Swing from here to here. You know the most amazing thing? The guy's like 8 for 12 or 8 for 11 since he started swinging everything that was from here to here. He's scaring everybody that pitches. I'm an incredible coach. We're 6 and 1 and I'm having fun. But I, but I earned it, man. I had five years where it wasn't a lot of fun. So I deserve it. I deserve everything I get. No, I don't. <laughs> so anyway, here we go, right? Okay, so instead of telling people, oh, come on, loosen up. So instead, you guys are doing pretty good without coffee this morning, you know that? Um, so instead of telling them what not to do, in Ephesians chapter 4, oh, that's right, that's where we're going. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what we need to do. Are you there? Oh, good. Can I borrow your Bible? Because I can't find it. <laughs> No, nah, that's fine. Stand. Okay, here we go. Ephesians chapter 4. You ready? This is going to teach us how to live a life pleasing to God. Here we go. This I say, therefore, in verse 17, and affirm together with the Lord, that you live or walk no longer as the Gentiles also live in the futility of their mind, being darkened. There's a contrast being, be, between living in the light and living in darkness. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous and having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But, contrast, You did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former way of living, you laid aside that old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you become renewed in your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and the truth. Okay, here's the contrast. You ready for it? Here's your old self, B.C., before you came to Christ. Here's your new self after you've accepted Christ. There's a contrast here that has to take place in how you live your life. So now he's going to go down through it, and here it is, starting with verse 25. It says, therefore, because you're new, you're not old, you're not this person you used to be, this is what needs to happen. You need to lay aside falsehood. Okay, there's that first step. So you're going to start to live a life pleasing to God. What are you going to do? I'm going to lay aside falsehood. But that's like saying don't swing at high pitches, right? Now, what are we supposed to do? Speak the truth. So now I can take a step. See how this works? I'm going to lay aside falsehood. There's one step. But I'm going to speak the truth. So I'm going to replace that step I used to take with a new step that says speak the truth. So the contrast that he gives is, hey, guess what? Those who are not believers live lives that are filled with lies. Expect it. They're going to lie to you every time that they can. But for a Christian, we have the temptation and the choice to still lie. But God's saying, if you want to live right before God, then you speak the truth. And speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What he's saying is, let's stop lying to people. No little white lies. You know, we try to get all this little gray area junk. There is no gray area here. You either lie to people or you don't. Stop lying to people. If you say you're going to be home at 6.30 and you know you're not going to be home at 6.30, you're lying. I don't care what you're doing, buying time, whatever it takes, but you know what? Then you need to do what you say you're going to do. If you say you're going to make a commitment, I made a commitment to be at this men's retreat. I told these guys, I said, look, you know what? I want to tell you right now. I struggled with coming. I forgot last year when I made this commitment that I was going to be in the middle of baseball season, and I didn't know it at the time, but I'm going to have a championship team, and I wanted to be there. But you know what? I would have had a lie to get out of it, and I couldn't do it. I made a commitment, so I was there. 
And there were three other guys that were going, really? You know what really ticks me off? I have a game this weekend too, and my wife found two guys who said, don't worry about it, and they'd be coaches for me just so I could come to this retreat. I say, good, I don't want to be here any more than you do. How's that? And it was great. We had something in common. But what it was was, hey, look, you either have a choice. You're going to lie to people or you're going to tell them the truth. There's a contrast. He goes on. So maybe this is too simple for you. But that's all right. It says, be angry. See, oh, you know, there's that old anger and then there's a new anger. There's a righteous anger. There's an anger that says, hey, you know what? God's angry at sin. We need to be angry at sin. The ma- most amazing thing is that Christians aren't angry at sin anymore. We don't get angry at sin. It doesn't bother us. As long as it doesn't affect us, then go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Hey, Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. He was so angry with sin. Jesus hates sin. And so should we, if we identify ourselves as his people. We should be speaking out against sin. Not anger because we don't get our way, but anger against the things that are righteous and should be, we should be angry about. How about where he says, hey, you know what? Let him who steals, steal no longer. But what should we do? Why don't you work for it? There's an idea. So he's saying, if you're stealing, don't steal and begin to work. And we can steal in a lot of different ways. We can steal on our expense accounts. We can steal stuff from the office. Pen, stationery, whatever, little things. That's not really stealing because there's a lot of them around. You know, we can, we can steal all kind of stuff. You know, we can steal by not paying somebody when we owe them so we can keep the money ourselves. We can steal from them for our own benefit. There's a lot of ways to steal. But you know what God says? Hey, that's, that's what a non-Christian does. God's people, you know what we do? We work for it. I struggle with stealing leads. Somebody calls and says, hey, you want to put some air conditioning? Oh, well, yeah, well, you know, okay, but you know what? If I don't, you know, I can do it like that. Well, I can do it like on the side. You know, I get a friend of mine, we can do it. Well, yeah, but see, then I, I struggle with that, man, because it's, it's a real struggle. And I'll just admit it to you. But I look at this, and God says, you know what? That's stealing. And there are a lot of people that do it. They go out on the job, and they give two prices. One, if uh, you run it through the company, and two, if you do it, eh, maybe a little cash deal. That's stealing. It's not right. But we have that struggle. I have a struggle every day. Am I going to do what's right or am I going to do what's wrong? He goes on. He says, you know what? Well, look at this. Let anyone steal, steal no more. But you know what? Work for it. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Things that tear people apart, rotten things, things that aren't good for the person that you're speaking to. It was a word that was used of rotting fish and vegetables in the book of Matthew. It's a terrible thing. How do you speak to other people? He says, be gracious. Be gracious in your speech. He goes on and he says that, and, and we'll talk about bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and malice. And he goes through and he contrasts it and he says, you know what? But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He says, be angry. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't have uh, bitterness towards somebody. You know what it says that we should be able to do as Christians that the world can't do? I should be able to forgive people who have wronged me because I know what it's like to be forgiven in Christ. So it says, look, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the way it works. I'm upset with somebody. They've hurt me. It happens all the time. I have a choice. Can I hold a grudge against them and be bitter toward them? Certainly. But can I also forgive them and be kind, giving them something they don't deserve because that's the example that I've been given in the fact that Jesus Christ forgave me my sins when I didn't deserve it. He demonstrated his love and yet while I was still a sinner, while I didn't deserve to be forgiven, he forgave me anyway. 
And so as a believer, we have the opportunity to forgive people who, frankly, the world would have a tough time forgiving. That's why people say, I don't get mad, I get even. I'll never forget. And they can't forget because they don't have the ability to forgive because they've never been forgiven and they don't know the, the basis or the source of forgiveness. We cannot forgive one another until we realize how we've been forgiven in Christ. It's amazing how that works. Who I am in Christ sets the tone for how I can respond to other people. We'll get, in, we'll get into more of that a little bit later. But we go on, and you can read in uh, Galatians chapter 5. There's a contrast there as well. And these are all things that are identified with the old self. Immorality, impurity, filthiness, silly jokes, telling dirty stories, telling dirty jokes. I've got a guy, I love this man. This guy is one of the greatest men of God I've ever met. He plays on the Seattle Seahawks. He's a cornerback. His name is Eugene Robinson. This guy, I love him like a brother because he is. And you know what he does? He says, oh, go on. He got hurt one time, and he was in the locker room. He was in the training room. He was at the Whirlpool, and the guys were in there just telling filthy j- jokes and stories. And you know what he did? He took his Bible in there, and he just sat there, and he just read it to him. He said, man, you know what? You guys shouldn't be talking like that. That's not pleasing to God. And he said, you know why? Because it says where there's immorality, impurity, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. He says, you know what we need to do as believers? We should be talking pure and clean and giving thanks to God for what he's done in our life. Thanksgiving. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, whatever is pure, lovely, of good repute, those are the things that you need to dwell on. Those are the things you need to be thinking about. Don't be putting garbage and smut in your head. Think about things that are pure and lovely and good and, ch- and change the dirty talk and dirty jokes to something that is pure and it is right before God. He said that is what differentiates between a Christian and a non-Christian. And then it goes on and he talks about drunkenness and he talks about using drugs and sorcery. God's people shouldn't be drunkards. God's people shouldn't use drugs. If we struggle with those areas, it doesn't mean you're not a believer, but it means that maybe you haven't made progress in that area, but we need to be turning from those things in our life and believing what God says about the life that he has available to us and that he can offer us. So we need to, be, we, we need to walk away from here understanding that there is a difference between how we used to live and how we are capable of living today. Number five, it is compared with the moral position of God. See, what he says is, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. You know what he's saying here is, not that you and I have fellowship with each other, but that we have fellowship with God. He says, If we walk in the light, and it has to do with present tense, this is the way we're living. If we live this way, then we have fellowship with God. You and I can be assured of our relationship with God by the way that we live our life. Not that living a certain way makes us right with God, but living a certain way after we've accepted Christ is an indication that we've come to know God. It has to do with present tense walking. And so the last thing is this, and that is the fact that living a certain way is considered as proof of our relationship to God. Living a certain way. Living a way that God says, like we just went through, the contrast. Here's what God says. Speak truth. Don't be angry. Be righteous when you're angry. Don't hold grudges. Forgive. 
don't out, no clamor or outburst or shouting out. You know, I think about that in every game that I ever coach. It's like, the, man, something comes, you want to snap and you want to shout out at the umpire. God's saying, hey, you know what, my people don't do that. And it's an amazing thing what a testimony it is to see a non-Christian and a Christian who are managing on two different sides of the fence. And when something goes wrong, you hear this guy screaming and yelling and cussing and running out onto the field. And I think, man, you know what, how am I different than that if I'm doing the same thing? And so what he says is self-control. If there's a problem, call him over, talk to him about it, but you don't scream at him, you don't yell at him, you don't threaten him, you don't run onto the field. And we see it all around us in, in sports where you know, a manager or a coach runs on the field and punches an umpire. I mean, what is that? But that's the world. That's the lifestyle that they have. They don't know any better. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the ways of God. But we're not, so why are we still doing the same things? We shouldn't be. We need to be making progress and getting away from those things. And so he says, but if we walk in light, present tense, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. The point that he's making is this. If we are living a life that identifies or lines up with what God says a Christian's life is supposed to be, and we live it on an ongoing basis, we may struggle in some areas, but we may be making progress, and we can see the progress, then God is saying this, that you can be assured that you've come to know him. One thing that I'm convinced of, And that is this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 and 5. We read, But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. And we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. He's saying the day of our Lord, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, we shouldn't be caught off guard. Because we're God's people and he's given us the information. We have it available. We're looking forward to it. That's the blessed hope uh, that every Christian should have. The blessed hope of his coming. We should all be looking forward with anticipation of the day that Jesus comes back. And he says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That we could praise God for bringing us from this life of darkness, excluded from God, into a new way of living, a new way of being able to uh, be testimonies before the world that we live in, a, a new purpose, a new hope. Man, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian and understand what Jesus has done for us, and not only what he did to take care of sin, but the life that we can now have, the abundant life that we can have in Christ, a new way of life, and also to look forward to an eternity to spend it with him. Man, we've got everything you could ever want, and it's a wonderful thing, and it's not because of us, but because it's a grace of God. In closing, I want to throw out a challenge to you. One thing I'm convinced of, if you're not walking, if you're not living a life that's pleasing to God, I'll guarantee you this, you will wrestle with whether you've ever come to know Christ or not. It's amazing to me how many people I talk to who are not sure of their relationship with Christ, not sure of where they stand for all eternity because they're living lives that aren't pleasing to God. There's sin in their life. And I'm convinced of this, that God does not want us to have a sense of assurance while there is sin in the life of a believer. He wants, us to clean, he wants us to confess it, He wants us to repent from it, and He wants us to live a life that is pleasing to God. You know what? I never doubt my salvation when I'm living a life pleasing to God. And it's not because I'm living a certain way that I'm assured I'm saved, but the argument and the evidence is there that if we continue to live a life that's not pleasing to God, then we lie and we don't have fellowship with God. What exemplifies the way you live? Column A, the old self. Or column B, the new self. 
If it's column A, then you better get right with God by asking Christ into your life. If it's column B, then it's a wonderful life that we live, isn't it? Next week, we'll talk about how do you deal with the sin that's in your life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to see a contrast between a way that is pleasing to you and living a way that's not. God, we know that uh, living certain ways isn't what makes us pleasing to you, but the fact that there's only one thing that we can ever do that pleases you, and that's ask Jesus Christ into our life. To realize that we can't do it on our own, to realize that we need his presence in our life, to realize he is God in human flesh who died for our sins, who rose again three days later to prove that he truly is God. Father, we just thank you as we ask him into our life that he is a light into our life, that he gives us a direction and a purpose and a, and a hope that we never had before. And we just thank you that your word is so clearly teaches that there is a way that's pleasing to you. There's a way to live that's pleasing to you. And we saw many examples of how that is. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you give us the strength and the power and the ability to live that life. That it's a life that's controlled, you say, by your Holy Spirit. A life that relies upon the Spirit of God within us for the power to do it. And we just thank you. You never ask us to do anything that you haven't given us the ability to do. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.